in the middle of a series called Being, and uh, I love the tagline here, Essence of Existence. And it's sort of brainy and dense and everything, but if you really allow it to shape your thinking, it's actually an amazing concept, you know? And the whole idea is that we can, our, our very existence is shaped by our identity, and we, if we allow our identity to be connected to the very master of the universe whose ping, fingerprints we have all over us as children of God, uh, it could be a transformative experience. That's basically the... the um, the concept. So today, um, it's a really, it's, a re it's actually probably one of the most important salient insights and points and dimensions of human flourishing that we're going to unpack. And uh, what I'll do is I'll start with a, a psalm. And uh, this, you know, psalms are, are remarkable because they are these sort of unfiltered, raw poetic, truthful, emotional, up and down expressions of how we think, how we feel, how we connect with God. Uh, and in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, it sort of gives you this, uh, quite literally, the, the point of how we operate, how we think, and why we come to church, seek spirituality, look out for, look for God in the first place. So here's what it says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, take or sit in the company of mockers. But those, uh, but those delight is, is, whose delight is in the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prosperous. So the Bible gives us this imagery of the, the person that we crave to be to be like a tree planted by a stream and you know and people go and people go birds fly to its shade that's sort of the image that is used in scripture over and over over and again and it's basically compares it to the person who's successful who's flourishing who's stable who has this longevity who has the strength um and you know one of the one of the images that uh, uh of sort of aspects of the tree that gives us sort of speaks to our cultural conditioning as in, as Americans in a, in a very individualistic society is that a tree is alone, right? Um, and the cool thing is that actually the, these, the trees that are stable, the trees that sort of symbolize longevity are not alone. So I want to, I want to show you a picture. This is from Yosemite. Uh, this is a redwood, right? In the Yosemite, these are obviously a long time ago. These are my two girls uh, trying to, you know, wrap their, their arms, or even to the width, they can't really wrap their, around their uh, arms around the tree, but sort of stand in the way. This massive, these massive trees in Yosemite, it's called the redwoods. The cool thing about the redwoods is that they can live for thousands of years, not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. There's, they're the tallest trees. They're sort of the single most massive thing, a uh, single thing. But they're so high, um, about 274 feet tall, they can go up to. Um, and almost as defying the laws of gravity, you would expect for the root system to go really deep in the ground. But they don't. They actually have shallow roots that go like maybe five or six feet, which is nothing compared to the height. Imagine that, right? Um, but what, the way they achieve their stability is by connecting with other roots. 
And then what they do is they fuse together. So these redwoods are not individual trees. They're groups of trees. They, they grow in groves. And that's what provides their, their stability, their age, their strength. This is what we go to wonder. Well, we stand in front of them and we just wonder at the glory of it all, right? There's another, uh, uh, there's another actually type of tree uh, that is even more sort of descriptive of what the Bible is talking about, and it's the aspen grove. Uh, the, the aspen groves are not as massive as you uh, would expect, but they are basically not individual trees. They're actual living organisms. So it's, I can show you the biggest one here. So this is one grove right here. This is in Ohio, and it's, uh, the name of it is, I think it's called the Trembling Giant or something like that, right? And let me read this to you. Um, <clears throat> it's called the, the Trembling Giant, and it spans 108 acres and weighs 131 million pounds. And it's literally have, these trees have identical genetical markers, which basically not, doesn't make them trees that are connected by a, a system of roots. It's one living organism, actually. Which basically means it's the largest living organism on Earth. It's the aspen groves. Now, why am I bringing all these things up like this trivia? It's because the, ch the church is described as that kind of system, right? It's a living organism. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, it says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all, um, all its many parts from one body, so it is with the Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. So we think of ourselves, part of the reason why we come to church is we feel something is missing. Almost no one comes to church, and you might be an exception here, out of sheer curiosity and intellectual sort of an intellectual pursuit. I want to figure this Christianity out. It just doesn't happen very much. Most of us come to, church, come to church originally because we have a pain point. We have something that we're missing. And the big thing that we're missing, especially in our culture, is that we think of ourselves as individuals. And what God designed us to be is a living organism. Connected with other people, our roots collaborating and even fusing together. That's the imagery that is used in scripture. And uh, that is a really countercultural thing. So we have this, on one side we have 50, almost 50% of the population in the US saying they're lonely, right? And on the other side, we have this imagery described by scripture, this culture that is a Christ culture that describes an aspen grove. And how do we gap these things? So today, that's what we're going to unpack, OK? Um, there's a study, it's pro probably one of my favorite studies. Um, of, uh, um, it's called the Harvard study. There's like, I think it's called the Harvard study of human development, something like that. And it's basically the, the longest study of tracking several hundred people 
from the beginning, from an early age of adulthood all the way to their death, so over 80 years. It's the, once, the only study on Earth that has been that consistent, right? So tracking 80 years, so it's tracking a bunch of people, now it's tracking their kids. And the, the idea is to determine what are the factors that contribute to human flourishing uh, on a very sort of social sciences level thing, right? So let's, let's step away from scripture for just a second and look at just the evidence of how that works. So basically the study, um, there's all kinds of books published from the study. There's a, there's a TED talk, um, I think it's given by Robert uh, Waldinger that has 40 million views. Uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of work that sort of been generated around it. It's a lot of interest because obviously most of us, all of us want to know how do I live a happy life? And they answer that question. And the answer is this. They sort of condensed the factors for a happy life into seven different factors. And here's the factors. And the thing is, most of them are completely unsurprising. All right? So you go, okay, so here, what are the factors? If you smoke and don't smoke, duh, right? Everybody knows that. Drinking, if you, if you abuse drinking, that, that influences. A healthy weight. If you exercise, here's, the, here's what it gets a little bit more specific in the sense of, oh, that makes a lot of sense, but I maybe don't think about it um, as often. Adoptive coping skills, which basically means if you have adversities and hardships, you're able to sort of take it, process it, do something about it, and move on. So it's an adaptive coping skill. The, the sixth one is education, your level of education. You think about things a certain way, you know, maybe deep enough. And then the last one is long-term stable relationships. Long-term stable relationships is basically that you have a significant support system, people around you who grow with you and are there for you no matter what. Now, of all these seven things, of all these seven things, there's one because they're not equally sort of important, right? And the spectrum is from, from healthy, happy, to uh, miserable and sick, you know? That's the spectrum. And, and they, they have all these granular, very detailed, very dense studies about it, but it really comes down to these seven things. And what basically, what they, but the, what they basically say that there's one, deter one factor, one thing, of all these seven things, that is the most important one that has the most influence on human happiness. And you can guess what it is. It's long-term happy relationships. That's it. The, the, the director of this program, George Valiant, uh, uh, who was probably the longest serving director for 30 years, he was director of this program, he basically says this. In his words, happiness equals love, period. That's it. Happiness equals love. And then basically what he describes as sort of the key, some dimensions within it, is that it's basically two things. One is the ability to love and build and nurture relationships. And two, coping skills that don't drive away love, which basically means, hey, are you a friendly person who loves people and invests relationships? And are you a toxic person who gets in fights with everybody and moves from relationship to relationship and destroys them? That's it. That's pretty much it, right?
It's amazing because you go, well, the Bible said that 2,000 years ago. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, after, basically the chapter after the, the scripture describes us as a church, as it was designed by God as a living organism, the chapter after that is the most quoted chapter in every wedding, right? It's the one about love. And it says, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So 2,000 years ago, the Bible said what it took 80 years for a Harvard study to figure out on a bunch of scientists, which is really cool. It also talks about the coping that doesn't drive away love. In Matthew 5, 23, it says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go first to be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Talks all kind, there's all kinds of instructions pleading with us in Scripture when it comes to relationships. Because relationships are hard, right? So the church is this, this living organism where people override their propensity to be overly individualistic, override their propensity to hold a grudge, override their propensity to avoid sort of relational pain and sort of move on and isolate themselves and work towards this safe place, this heavenly place where grace abounds. Where every single person in this room is slightly irritating to the others. Right? And that's by definition, right? Because I am not you, you are not me. And yet we, we come to each other with this desire to be united. I'm not you and you're not me, but I'm going to be a little bit less so we can be together. You've hurt me, or maybe I've hurt you and I have this hint that you've, you're sort of avoiding me. And I will come to you before I even give a gift to God. Because I want to be with you. And where there's, a, where there's small groups or big groups or medium-sized groups and all kinds of environments where anyone can say, hey, I'm hurting. Hey, I'm offended. Hey, I'm just struggling and I, I need some help right now. Where this is the normal thing. Where we're an aspen grove not like a proud oak that sits separately and is, gives, gives out this sort of vibe of, I have this. That is the church. That is what the scripture says we're designed to be. This is the place where human flourishing happens. Only this way. Only this way. We can, if we can take the, the activity of the church, the life of the church, and we go, oh, I like worship. I like the sermon. I don't like the sermon. I like the small group culture. I like Zach Scott Theater. I like the fellowship after. I like all kinds of things, right? Prayer to, prayers together. There's one thing that is objectively, both spiritually and through social science, highlighted and true. 
the way to flourish is to be a living organism together. That's it. The fl the happiness equals love. Now here's the problem. <clears throat> we live in the most lonely societies on earth. Right? Very populous society, but very lonely. Partially because we're um, an individualistic culture just in general. We're not a communal culture. Um, that's part of the reason why we are so wealthy, right, as a group. But the downside is we're very, very, very lonely. Now that influences us on every other level. That's why the study shows this is the thing that matters. You know, happy, happy healthy, miserable, sick. Even health depends on it. There's a, there's a book that's, that's called The Lonely Century. It basically gives all this information about almost 50% of, of all Americans feel lonely. And it equates loneliness, like a state of loneliness where you go, I feel alone, to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness as a state of, and it's, it's a relational state. And yet it leads to cognitive decline, all kinds of mental illness and stuff like that. So there's a health impact if you stay lonely, right? Um, it's really fascinating. The, the most lonely people of all the people in America are the people that are high skilled, high education, and high prestige. Who here has a higher education? Many of us do. Who here has a job that is high skilled jobs? Many of us do. Some of us have high prestige jobs. You are the number one target for lonely and miserable. As a matter of fact, amongst professionals, lawyers and doctors, the most lonely people on earth, the most miserable ones, right? Uh, even, it's really fascinating because even romantic love uh, is really not about sex, right? Sex or eros, right? And the, uh, the Greeks have all kinds of words uh, describing love. We have one. Right? It's interesting. We simplify things. Um, even sex, um, it's, it's really not purely spiritual in the Bible. It's, a deeply, it, it's not purely physical. It's very spiritual, and it's very relational. Now, what the world teaches us is that it's about acrobatics and novelty, Right? Um, that's what it's about. That's what the porn industry teaches us. And we want sex and we desire sex. That's why when the internet got invented, the number one thing that won is porn in the internet. Like they're the most innovative people. Why? Because there's a demand. They don't just sit around in lab coats trying to invent something. No, we want this. So if we don't have sex figured out, and the Bible teaches very simply that it's not about, it's, it's, a very, it's a deeply spiritual thing, and it's a deeply, deeply relational thing. So sex is much more about companionship than it, about, than it is about acrobatics or novelty or dopamine, right? In Proverbs 5, it says, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated, with a love, and all the married men said, all right.
Now, social sciences confirm all of that. Confirm all of that. Um, I have a really cool, actually, a couple of interviews with a sexologist. His name is uh, Joe Beam. So if, you, if you're interested in that whole thing, we discussed it at length. It's amazing how science confirms scripture over and over and over again, right? If you want to find it, uh, Google Christian Ray Flores, Joe Beam, with an M at the end, and you'll find a couple of the talks. Just the insights are actually quite remarkable. And they confirm what scripture says, that the happiness, even sexual happiness, within a, within a marriage has everything to do with long-term companionship. The physical part is just a small piece of it. That's what it is, right? Now, so who, is the, who tends to be less successful at relationship, men or women? Can you guess? Wow, that was, that was quick. Yes, it's true. So women are much more relational. They more naturally tend to, to seek friend, deep friendships, meaningful friendships. Men, um, they, men tend to bond over activities, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, we sort of, if we do things together, we bond, right? That's essentially what it is. So we, if we go to a sports game, if we, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I can believe, just in faith, that if you play video games online and there's other guys somewhere else, maybe there's bonding there. I'm not sure, actually. Um, but the bottom line is, love is not easy for anyone. It really isn't. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably the hardest thing, but it's the one thing that will make you flourish. And really, if, you, if there's nothing else you take away from this talk is this. It's worth everything. If you want to be happy, you need to f learn how to love, and you need to learn how to not drive away people who love you. Especially the guys. Especially the guys. Like, let me ask you the guys, and you don't have to answer that and embarrass yourself, but how many true friends do you have? Colleagues don't count. And you might be a friend with your colleagues, but men tend to replace for actual friendships by work relationships. It's not the same thing. Doesn't count. Your spouse doesn't count. Doesn't count fully. It means it's not enough to be BFFs with your wife, right? How many, like beyond your wife, beyond colleagues, how many deep friendships can you count in your mind? And if you're, you start sort of compensating, going, no, I'm not, it's not that bad for me, right? Well, let me ask you more, uh, one more question. Who of them that you've just listed to compensate a little bit and make yourself feel better, have you talked in the last month or two? So an army buddy who you talked you talk two, three years ago for last time, that sort of thing, a college friend, doesn't count. Deep, ongoing, current relationships. How many? How many? In John 13, 34, Jesus says this striking, amazing thing. He says, a new command I gave you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know 
that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is quite, quite, quite directly from the mouth of Jesus the defining characteristics of, characteristic of the church. How we love one another is how connected we are, how reflective we are of our connection as a church to Jesus. That's it. There's, a, there's nothing more important than that, right? And it's worth fighting for, right? Um, let, me, uh, let me give you some, some, some ideas about how, uh, what are the sort of the normal things people respond, like use as excuses or reasons why they don't have long-term relations. One is time. All right, number one is time. Number two is work. Number three is wounds. I'll unpack this for you in a second. So time is limited. We all have the same allocated time. So if we say, I don't have time for deep friendships and relationships, what you're saying, just think about this, is I don't have time to be happy. That's what you're saying. And basically the question is, are you okay with that statement? The second reason is work. I don't I have so much work, I work so much that I don't have the ability to develop deep friendships. And then the question is this, have you considered that you work, and it's not really the work, it's the success perhaps, it's the extrinsic stimulants, are actually in fact your idols. That you're an idolatrous person, to a degree. that you are workaholic, that you run to work from something else. Just consider that. Maybe ask somebody that, right? Here's a third thing, wounds. Let me unpack this one, it's a little bit more, less straight, straightforward. Deep down inside, you feel either wounded by relationships, and this is very, very common even within the church. You either feel wounded by relationships, and because of those wounds, you have sort of this mild PTSD where you're very careful developing further relationships. You project wounds to new relationships. These people that you're around have nothing to do with your responses and your, and your wounds, and yet you project those wounds and that fear and that sense of being raw to them, and the, the problem with that is that they can't be friends to you if you do that. It's not right to project your wounds that were, t were received somewhere else onto new people. It's not gonna help you. It's not gonna help them, it's not gonna help anybody. The second aspect is that not only that you uh, uh, sort of receive wounds and that's sort of fresh in your memory, and these things, by the way, remain fresh in your memory if you don't deal with them. You know, the, the whole thing that time heals, that's a lie. It's not true. You know, deal with it. The other side of it is that you've inflicted wounds and you feel guilty and you feel shame. And if you, don't, you don't know if we, you can fix it. You have wounded people. And thinking about it, re, sort of re-engaging that is a painful, painful experience for you. Those are the reasons that are most quoted as the reasons why people do it and how they do it, right? So, what, how do we, we, we'll pray in, in just a minute for communion. 
But I want to leave some thoughts for you, some, something to do, right? First is happiness equals love, period. And then it, the, the Bible says so, science says so, it's just true. And if you distill something to its very, very essence, and how, what we're trying to explore is that essence defines existence. It can really shape the way you, the way you operate, the way you think. So let's talk about these just three dimensions, time, right? You will not be able to love well if you don't allocate time to it. Is that like a complicated concept? No, it's not straightforward. What it is, it's complicated to execute. Why? Because we all have patterns. We all have habits. We all have schedules that are hard to change. And the bottom line is this. Do you want to love better? Give it time. Allocate it. How does that look like? You're here. Baby step. Right? You've allocated time to love people and fellowship in the church on Sundays. Small group is for that. Any other thing. Sabbathing. A day off. A day of joy. A day of fun. A day of delight. Most people can't not bear a full day of delight. Have you noticed that? You feel guilty. Like literally, you have more than one hour of fun in a row and you go, what's wrong? What's wrong? I shouldn't be having this much fun. How about a day? The Bible tells us that one day is a good start. Right? One full day of absolute delight. Sabbath. That's what it's for. It's for relational delight. And it's super hard to do, but you have to do it. You have to allocate the time, right? Vacation is for relationships. Taking your wife on a date, your husband on a date, that's for relationships. Time is necessary for that. Bottom line is there is, there is no way around it. Your time needs to reflect your priorities. If your priority is, to flourish, is to flourish as a human being in relationships, that needs to be reflected in your time. Does that make sense? Super logical, very hard to execute. But there's no way around it. That's, what I'm point. That's my point. And I think one of the beauty, beautiful things in the church is that you can learn in community. Because these are patterns that are hard to change. It takes years. But if you're together, Aspen Grove style, right? And you're loving together. And you're saying, man, I've missed two days with my wife again. And people are not going to be like hitting you over the head with it. What is wrong with you, dude? But just lovingly saying, okay, let's look at your calendar, bro. Let's figure this thing out. Together. With grace. Things, things change. I promise you. Things change. It's this very step-by-step -step loving, grace-filled community. It can change. So the second thing is rethinking work. Uh, we had this small group meeting on Monday and one, one of us, I think it was Shelly Gantz, she said, you know, what we should be asking is, uh, what am I in denial of? And that was like a challenge we, we did with our group. We're like, okay, how about all, every single one of us takes the time to ask someone in this group, what am I in denial of? That is such a scary question, right? That is a scary question. So I want to challenge you with this. When it comes to work specifically, because one, that's one of the main reasons why relationships uh, 
um, don't, don't flourish is it gets crowded out by work. Just ask yourself, ask somebody you trust, somebody wise, say, okay, when it, when it comes specifically to work, what am I in, den in denial of? And, and it's a scary question. If you're scared of this question, it means you probably know the answer already, right? <laughs> and you're denying it, right? Uh, that's the whole point, right? Um, what am I in denial of? It's a good question. It's a painful question, but it's a good question. Because what it can do is sort of remove your illusions about what to expect from tomorrow. Do you want to be, do you want to flourish? You need to be in an aspen grove. And if work is crowding out your aspen grove, you're not going to flourish. That's it. It's that simple. It's painful, but it's simple. And then the third thing is this, about wounds. Do more hard work. Part of it is because we're, we're usually a, a culture in a hurry, a culture in denial, a culture that is individualistic. We inflict wounds, we receive wounds, and we just do not do the hard work to heal those wounds. What are the steps necessary for you to heal your heart relationally? Who do you need to forgive? And how? What are the steps necessary for you to make amends? Do you need to call a list of people and say, hey, I'm sorry. I've been a knucklehead this way, specifically with you, and I'm sorry. I mean, that, that takes so much emotional bandwidth, so much emotional labor. And most of us are unwilling to do the work, and we literally hurt ourselves by doing so. I mean, that's a practice that I've done over the years. If, I, if I'm in denial of something, and I am de in denial of all kinds of things, right? But they get revealed through the grace of God, through community, through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, through my spouse who speaks into my life, through my friends. If something gets revealed to me, I go and make amends. You know, it, I mean, every, every once in a while, I think last year I, ha I made one phone call of amends being made for something that happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And you do not want to make that phone call. But that phone call is healing. It's healing for the other person. It's healing for you as well. Do the hard work that is necessary for you to flourish. Grow your aspen grove. For there resides your flourishing, my flourishing, our flourishing. This is it. Happiness equals love. Let's pray. Father, um, 